Hey, it's Breaking Barriers, the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging podcast. We're here for real talk. We're not afraid to go there. And we want you to come away emboldened and energized to take action and make change. We believe our diversity, our differences, when joined together by a common set of ideals, makes us stronger. When I set out to help someone, uh, it is my intention to do just that. I'm not trying to do anything other than meet somebody at their humanity. What up, world? We are so excited to kick off our inaugural podcast, Breaking Barriers, the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion podcast, brought to you by Kirkwood Community College. I'm your host, Anthony Arrington, with my co-host, Nick Ford. How you doing, Nick? What's up, man? I'm doing great. This is exciting. I'm really looking forward to this and a couple of great guests for let's our do first it. show. Yeah, let's let's do it, man. Well, well, since this is our inaugural show, we should probably tell the folks kind of about our business, what we do. So top rank, we are a diversity, equity, inclusion recruiting and consulting firm. We focus on facilitation. We focus on unapologetic efforts to help companies improve their culture. As Nick and I say, we want to work ourselves out of a business. Yep. That is our vision is to no longer have to do this. Since this is our inaugural show, why don't you tell us about the podcast and why we started this, Nick? Yeah, we really want to talk to other folks in the space, other people involved with the space of one form or another, and, and really get some true feelings out there and some true thoughts and, and have some honest discussion. Uh, we know the discussion in the space isn't always easy, but it has to happen. And uh, we're, I say, we're really excited about it. And I think we couldn't ask for two better individuals to be on the show with us today in this space. So, who, who are these folks we got here? We got some stars in the house. With we them. do. So, we've got Chris Armstrong and Vince Brantley, both from Veritas. Chris is the co owner and chief content officer at Veritas Culture. Prior to becoming the co owner of Veritas, he was the culture executive for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency the NGIA, and the culture executive for the, the Defense Intelligence Agency. In these capacities, he's responsible for maintaining a consistent understanding of the culture, determining root issues, and facilitating root solutions and culture improvement. Success in these areas led to dozens of requests from federal, state, local, nonprofit, and private sector organizations. He's a certified diversity executive. He's a certified coach, a certified emotional intelligence assessor, a certified virtual facilitator, and a certified master facilitator. Uh, in addition, he's also certified at teaching all of those as well and certifying those. So Vince, Vince is also uh, the the, co- the principal resident co-owner and chief technology officer of Veritas. Prior to becoming the co-owner, he was the culture executive of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, in this capacity, he was responsible for developing implementing strategies focused on resolving root challenges of the organizational culture. Over his 28-year career in the United States Army, Vince attained the rank of sergeant major and served in this capacity in several positions across different organizations. He's a trained master facilitator, trained diversity executive. Uh, They are also both authors. We'll talk about their books a little later. Uh, And, of course, they're both music lovers as well. Welcome, fellas. It's good to be here. It is good to be here. And then we can talk about music if you want. (laughs) Talk music all day long. Forget that. Let's get into why we brought you all the way here to the studio from D.C. Let's let's talk about what we all do for a living. You know, first question I have, Nick Nick and I were attracted to you. We, We found you actually online. You were Chris, you were friends with a friend of mine, and, and I connected with you over four years ago when you started this business. What attracted me to you was that your authentic approach to talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging in a way that's different than other people. Talk about your approach because it's it's different, and it's challenging for some organizations, I would assume. It is challenging, and I'll start off, and then I'll pass it over to my colleague. Um, Quite frankly, in the diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging and culture space, to your point about sort of the authentic approach, what we found was that there was a lot of traditional approaches around surveys, lots of traditional approaches around the customer is always right. So if you're going to do work in this space, be mindful of sort of customer sensitivities, be mindful of, you know, client uh, comforts, 
And what we really found was, while it is our job to authentically explore, to authentically understand, to authentically uh, resolve culture issues, our primary concern can't be traditional sort of comforts and traditional approaches because they haven't worked. So what we really do is we say, if you want us to help you fix your culture, help you fix your diversity to belonging challenges, we have to understand what they are at the root, which really means we have to engage and interact with people within the organization who comprise the culture, even if that engagement is uncomfortable for some people because there are no canned questions. We don't go in with any perceived ideas about what the solutions are, what the problems are. And that kind of approach can be uncomfortable for people who want to know what questions are you going to ask? What might our people say? How long are you going to be on site? And if you can't answer a lot of those questions up front, some clients get a little hesitant because they're used to something that's a little more programmed, a little more sort of structured. And Vince, I'll turn it over to you to sort of talk about, you know, what we do to overcome that fear and also what might be some of the challenges with traditional structures. I'll start with the perceived challenges. For a leadership uh, team or the leaders of an organization to provide safe space, it often requires them to step out into a space that feels unsafe, uh, to remove their safeguards, to move away from the known approaches, to be willing to trust the organization enough to give them an opportunity to speak freely. Now, what the process does is it ensures that we build trust along the way. For us, we have to ensure that we build trust with the leaders as well so that they understand that our approach is one of neutrality, which means we don't come in making assumptions. We don't put words into the mouths of their workforce. We listen to what they have to say, but we're also not recorders. We don't just collect the information they give and present it as facts. We challenge them. Uh, through the lenses of uh, emotional intelligence, systems thinking, and reality testing. That often takes their authentic feelings and moves them beyond just uh, emotions so that our assessments are reliable. You know, they're, they're, they're trustworthy. But it, it can be very challenging for leaders uh, when they don't know what they don't know. In many cases, they're trying to do the right thing. They don't know where to start. They're always worried about what the eventual end state will be. If you give people an opportunity to say whatever they feel, what will they say and how will that impact uh, my organization? How will that impact my legacy? That's wonderful. Like we hear that all the time. We, the, the sexy word, safe space, right? We're going to be in a safe space, right? It's going to be a brave conversation. A lot of consultants, a lot of folks say that. Why, why, how come your approach is so different, so unique? I'm the CEO, and I'm like, you come in my office, and I'm like, well, well wait, you don't have a survey? How are you going to measure? How are you going to track it? I think I'd start by saying we don't, you'll never hear us say to a group of people that this is a safe space because we don't get to make that call. We don't get to decide what's a safe space for somebody. We don't go in presuming that whatever our approach is is going to make someone feel safe because, as Vince said, we don't go in presuming what the environment is, let alone whether our approach is going to make them feel safe. I'd start with that. I'd also say what's different to your point about sort of the surveys and the measurements. We really, anybody who wants to do authentic work and meaningful work in this space has to get out of the business case for diversity mindset. This idea that you can track or validate feelings. Culture by definition is collective regard and social norms. And you ha there has to be some level of comfort in seeing that there's subjectivity there. It's not as easy to measure as you know, uh, a roadmap, 
it's easy for someone to say, well, let's do some training because I can schedule the training. I'll know when it's complete. But what we also know is we've done training for 20 years and it hasn't done anything. So you really have to go into this space saying, we acknowledge the subjectivity. We acknowledge it's difficult to measure. But what's hard to ignore is what we call collective and representative regard. So Vince, over to you. Yeah, it's hard to turn your back on and turn and look away from input that's been received and that resonates amongst the collective majority of your workforce. Um, it's also hard to unsee when certain demographics feel a way that no one else observes, can associate with, or can be uh, empathetic to. So those type of things stand out above all. Once they're exposed, it's hard to get the genie back in the bottle. Is why change becomes so truly imperative. And I know one thing we have in common is from military and Department of Defense organizations, they're very data-centric people, even with education, you know, very data-centric people. Talk about all these symptomatic issues they've responded to in the past. I know the big part of what we do and what you all do is, is root cause. So how do we explain to people how to get from that symptomatic approach to the root cause-based approach? And what challenges are, have you seen there of getting to that approach? What's interesting is you can actually meet data-centered people with data. So, for instance, we will we'll ask a group of senior leaders who might be those data-centered people. So, for how long have you used this approach? Several years. How much change have you seen as a result of that approach? We're spinning our wheels every year. So, there's data that says even though they take the data-centered approaches, the symptomatic approaches, they build solutions based on those approaches, the data shows that surveys and complaints don't change. In some cases, you can ask a simple question like, okay, let's go to a traditional symptomatic complaint like poor leadership. If we're going to run with that as the root issue, which it's not, it's a symptom, let's ask some basic questions like, how long have you been in the organization? Oh, 19 years. How long has there been a problem? 19 years. In 19 years, how many different leaders have there been? Eight. How is it that no matter how often the leadership changes, the issues remain? Or how many times do non-supervisors complain about leaders until they become leaders that non-supervisors complain about? So it's as simple almost as if those are the problems in training and town halls and communication strategies are the solutions, why do the problems remain? The other eye-opening revelation in all of this is that people are not data points. As much as we'd like them to be, we want them to fit in little boxes and be able to ignore, uh, organize them and categorize them and implement them. They just aren't. I would say now more than ever, people are resistant to being put in boxes. They don't want to be labeled. Although you may get a lot of groupings and data points from data, what you won't get is an understanding of where people are, where they're coming from. And if you don't have that understanding, how do you help move anyone anywhere? So I'm going to play devil's advocate just for the heck of it. Yeah, please do. Well, because it's important, actually, not for the heck of it. <laughs> I'm a CEO and I'm saying, that sounds really good. But how are you going to come back in a year or two? How am I going to know down the road that I'm improving? So there are trackable measures when it comes to root-focused culture change. And I'll just give you some examples, one of which surprises a lot of people when Vince introduces it. One of the first indications that your culture is improving is that the first year after a root-focused culture effort, your complaints go up. Because what that really means is that people who've wanted to lean in, who've wanted to highlight a challenge, actually feel like they can because they trust something's going to be done. Now, we talk a lot about Me Too and the Black Lives Matter movements. Sexual harassment and racism aren't new. But the reason those movements are more prominent, more powerful now is because people have more of a belief that something's actually going to be done. What are some other things you can actually measure? You can measure survey improvements. 
we know that surveys in and of themselves don't give you an assessment of the culture, but they still give you some sense of where people are. So you can certainly track whether those surveys are going up and down. You can look at whether or not your diversity is increasing, whether or not your representation is increasing. Those are still good indicators. What they're not are the root indicators of how people feel. So when you do a survey, for instance, it's almost inarguable, even to companies who thrive on surveys, it's almost inarguable that you're not still going to have to unpack what those survey responses are. And so in a world where people are traumatized, they're tired of continuously lending their voice to culture efforts. Why would we put them in a situation where we give them a survey on the front end, knowing that on the back end, we're still going to have to unpack what that meant? How about just talk to them in one foul swoop, get to the human-centered part of it, and then in three to, in the next two or three years, to your point, track survey trends, track diversity trends, representation trends, complaint trends, track policy changes. Are people actually changing policies because we've changed their hearts and minds? So I think what I hear you saying is that you're not opposed to continuing these metricized tools you have, but they can't be used as the gospel. They can't drive your decision-making because they don't really get to the root of the issues. And they're subjective. And I'll give you one other quick example. People will say surveys aren't subjective because they're data. It's demographics too. But what informs the surveys? Subjective thoughts and feelings. I'm responding to the survey based on how I feel, which is subjective. So even though a number pops out on the other end, it still comes from a subjective place. We say demographics are objective. No, they're not, because everything that influences demographics, hiring decisions, promotion decisions, are based on subjective and biased opinions and decisions. It's all human-centered. It's 100% subjective. But again, you can't argue trends in collective regard. And whether or not I trust the process or trust the people who are running the process will ultimately inform whether or not I'm honest to begin with. It will inform whether or not I take the survey or I don't. Most organizations go off of survey results that may be 60% of the organization not really understanding or never really knowing why the 40% didn't take it and how truthful and accurate the 60% is. Mm-hmm. The old famous IP address, right? Yeah. Uh, who's, who's looking at my IP yeah. address? Who set up the survey? Who wrote the questions, right? All that stuff. Yeah. One, one thing that I always find interesting, especially you know, working with, with you all, is not afraid to turn away business. You think it's a small business starting up. I think you, you all started up a couple of years or so before we did. Sometimes it hurts to turn away that business early on, but you all, you were both are very adamant about what's the right fit for you as well. Do you explain that a little bit, maybe how you could take that approach? It became absolutely necessary. One of the things that is one of our core tenets is eliciting authentic trust. We're introduced to a workforce. We begin building trust with them from the very first conversation conversation. Now they trust in us. When you find out down the road, six weeks into an assessment process after 20 or 30 sessions, that there's an, there's an ulterior motive to why you were implemented in the first place. Uh, that instead of wanting to know what the workforce is, they really wanted you to be a messenger to the workforce to help them to see that their concerns are not really concerns. What do you do from there? And so it only takes one, once or maybe twice to be in that situation. <laughs> in our case, it, it was it was twice, different reasons. But it, we got to a place where we're like, we cannot, we can no longer afford to walk into these doors. It's just not worth it. We, in, in some of our earliest discussions, as business partners and as friends, we agreed impact over everything. It's not enough to accept business 
when the outcome is something that you deem to be unacceptable. That's something we, we can't live with, even though you need money to leave, live off. Can you live with it? That's I, the question. I like the way you said that. That's very true. It's like, can you live with it at the end of the day? Yeah. Obviously, you're early in your business. You're a few months into your business. How did you convince organizations or what was your ability to attract organizations to your style when you, when you had no, maybe you had no clients to begin with or trying to, to disrupt the system or the, disrupt the process by how we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion in a space that everybody's used to that tradition. How did you break in? What was your mojo that, that attracted people to your style? I know it attracted us <laughs> accident in the internet, but I'm just curious about that. Well, I do think initially we were fortunate in that we had a lot of referrals. Mm-hmm. And so while, while Vince and I both left uh, the federal government at the same time, um, a lot of federal clients, when we were federal employees, followed us, which means they really referred us to a lot of people. And frankly, the reason they referred us to a lot of people is the very reason I left the federal government. I could have stayed 14 years, retired, did what everyone else does, but they were tired of, I was tired of doing the same thing every year, get, paying the same amount of money to consultants who basically just do surveys and they're afraid to have the crucial conversations. And so a lot of those same clients who were clients of ours in the government said, we're going to follow you out the door, meaning when you leave, we're going to connect with you and we're going to bring you business. And quite frankly, they did. Um, but I'd be, it would be, I'd be remiss to say, I think par- probably one of our biggest, uh, I don't want to call it a win because there's nothing winning about sort of tragedy, but we were the first responders to the Charlottesville race riots, to the St. Louis events, to the Minneapolis events, quite honestly. And that really did increase our profile because then people started wondering, why are these two guys the first people always called when these events happen? And the reality is the reason we were always called, and I'll turn this over to Vince because he's the superstar in this space, is we go into these discussions, as he said earlier, with a neutral lens. And so whatever side of the quote-unquote aisle someone is on, they trust us to come in the door and really be honest brokers in those discussions. Yeah, that's a great point. If you could add to that, yeah, the coming in with neutrality, knowing that you have lived experiences yourself. I mean, um, the relationships that we've built over time, the shared experiences and the organizations that we've been invited to, the trust that we've built within those organizations and their leaders, those things are multipliers when it comes down to marketing. We've never been the type of people market to influence. We always thought of ourselves as people who influence to market. People are attracted to us because of what we've done if they don't know enough about us to trust us, there's someone that they trust and their trust, when they're in an issue, they go to that person to trust. Now, these are the guys that we trusted to come into our organization. That means the world to us. It's another reason where why it makes it very easy to walk away from discussions when you know leaders aren't, that, that their heart is not in the right place. Now, there are some leaders who are struggling, and I want to be very clear about this. We, we can hear that. It's one thing to hit a wall and you don't know what to do and and you need help and you don't know what you're willing to do because you don't know what the options are. We'll work with all of that. Uh, But there are still organizations out there, there are leaders out there who really just want this to go away. They want anything to make it disappear. They don't want to do the work. 
they want the organization to change so that they don't have to. And that's just not what we, what we're willing to participate. Your world has changed, but your dreams shouldn't have to. That's why Kirkwood is your next best step. With affordable, flexible, and close-to-home options, now's a great time to start or finish your Kirkwood degree. Learn more at kirkwood.edu slash findyourfuture. Displaced or discouraged at work? Kirkwood can help you learn a new skill or totally reinvent yourself for a brand new career. With so many flexible and affordable options, you can get back on track fast. Learn more at kirkwood.edu slash findyourfuture. So during your time of doing all this great work, what have been some of your biggest challenges and, and how have you overcome or, or maybe still overcoming some of them? Vince and I talk about this one a lot. Um, one of the bigger challenges is for people who really want the work done, they can have a presumption that we are like every other consultant firm who is who's really there to check a box. And there are consultant firms who are there to check a box, quite frankly. For people who don't know us, but who are referred to us, even though they were referred to us, they, there's still a little initial skepticism on their part. And I think it's understandable skepticism because what they're worried about is, are these people going to be more worried about follow-up contract work and, you know, and making leadership happy, or are they actually going to be willing to do the business? And so you face some of that skepticism. And I think the only other thing I would add that, that's really been a challenge um, has been getting, and we, we're dealing with one literally as we speak, um, getting those fearful, scared leaders um, to lean into change when what they see going on around them is attempted cancellations, uh, people basically just wanting to shut the door, you know, if you make a mistake. So basically we, and mainly Vince as the, as this lead coach and facilitator is trying to get them to sort of see a window and go through that window. And what they're, but what they're seeing is, Oh no, no, I'm not saying the wrong thing. I'm not doing the wrong thing because I have a career. I have a life in, We've literally had situations where we've delivered an assessment on day one, let's call it day one of the assessment delivery, and we're still coaching a client nine months later because breaking down that fear and really getting them to see that window and walk through it is hard. It's a personality change. You're really asking somebody to change, look in, this, in themselves in the mirror and change how they But how it's they not change. just that. You're also right. asking them to change, not knowing how people are going to respond to that change. Mm -hmm. Vince, because you yeah. talk about this a lot, yeah. Yeah, the uncertainty involved with all of your relationships and your history. Um, you've been talking a certain talk and walking a certain walk your entire career. And then you meet uh, two guys and one of them has a fedora. And they say, hey, have you heard what your people have to say about this? And this is how it's impacting. And you want to do something different. But doing something different would fly in the face of everyone you know. All your mentors, it yeah. even be influences as, as deep tough. as your parents. You know, like yeah. all to turn away from all of that and step out in a different direction, not knowing what that direction will ask of you ultimately. Yeah. It, it's a very scary place to be. With. And we're okay with having those conversations. There are companies that are not. Yeah. You know, we're okay with having those conversations. What we're very careful about all of this is listening for when uh, people really don't want to change, when they're apologetic in a moment um, because they've been caught. They're acting in response. They're trying to save themselves. And so they bring in people 
uh, to put up a smoke screen so that things will go away. We're not that smoke screen. Yeah. One of the things I really love about what Veritas does as well is, and we've talked about this on contract sale, you'll come in and do an assessment, but you're also willing to train people in the same method you're using, which is kind of pushing away business, right? Long-term business, like the concept that, you know, how they're going to ask for more work. It's one of the things we also love doing and being certified with y'all. What makes a good facilitator? What are some key aspects that without these, you're just, it's not going to work? Because it is a unique skill set. I mean, that's a Vince question. He's the best facilitator. It is. I think you're right. It's a unique skill set. Yeah. Nick, great point. You think about post George Floyd, right? Everybody was having these, we need to have these listening sessions, right? But how impactful are those without having somebody that can manage and really knows how to manage? So talk, that's a great question. What's a good facilitator? I think a good facilitator has to be in touch and grounded in a way that allows them to be neutral in spaces where there's not a lot of room for neutrality. You take George Floyd, for instance, there's not a lot of room to be sitting on a fence, if you will, or to even be viewed in that way. It was always one or the other. That's it? right. Which, which side of people, everyone's wondering, which side are you on? And here you come in talking about, I'm going to be neutral for a moment. But how do you get anywhere without that? We are neutral in discovery so that we can be passionate in execution. That's the purpose behind it all. So it serves a purpose. You really got to be grounded in order to do that, to stare people in the face, to look across the table and know that this person may have racist tendencies. They may have sexist ten tendencies, and yet they're a person who may have never had an opportunity to talk to a person who listened to understand. I always say, I'll speak to a clan member if I have to, as difficult as that may be. I need to understand that person, their mindset, what made them put the hood on. That may be a, a conversation that has to be had. One thing that really stuck me with, with our training we went through was you have to have true hope that anyone can change. And, and for me, that was hard at first. And it's got to be all really hard as a lived experiencer. How do you get through that as a lived experiencer? It, there's no other way. How do we get to change if we can't talk to the people who require change the most or require the most change? As long as we're talking to people with like mind and of like emotions, uh, what can we really improve? W what about the world is going to change? What about our workplace is going to change for as long as we're staying within the safety of the people who know what we know and feel what we feel? But when you open the door, not only do you give opportunity for someone to cross over, even just to take a couple of steps in a different direction, those steps are huge for them. People say that all small steps are baby steps, and people tend to frown upon baby steps, but every step is a every small step is a baby step unless you're a baby. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Like you bring out your camera, you want to save that moment, right? For many of these people, it's their first steps. Who amongst us is willing to be there? For that first step. All the while knowing that at the end of the day, they have access to people and to minds we wouldn't even know. If you really want to get to change, they've got to be willing to turn and because they have the trust. They know the who's who. They know mm -hmm. the, the secret conversations. So that's what motivates me in that space. And those dark, when you when you're descending to a level of depth that you've never been to and it's 
man, this this feels bad right here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. cold and clammy Real down tough. here right Real now. Real tough. <laughs> right? Real tough. But I am encouraging those moments that if I can just raise them just a little bit, the goal of change is just to move so far from where you are that you can never return to where you came from. I don't have a place for you. I'm not trying to get you anywhere. Can I bring you to a place of awareness as to where you are? Connect that with where you want to be and what you want for yourself, for your family, for your children, for your world, for your legacy, whatever's important to you. In order to promote the idea of change for you, to give birth to the idea of optimism for something different. And I like what you work. said earlier too, you know, and to do that, you've got to be able to be willing to accept those changes in your relationships. That, that may be a, a byproduct of your decision. What, uh, Nick knows I say this all the time. It, it might be that you can't go to Uncle Jimmy's house for Thanksgiving anymore. You might not get that invitation. You might not get invited to the golf outing that you're usually at every week. Those are real possibilities. Um, and the question is, are you willing to, to what I call the proverbial, take the arrows? So. We probably should, uh, we could talk all day, but we got questions. We take a listener question on every episode. So if you all could keep your questions coming in, send them to uh, info at toprankedtalentsolutions.com. Today's question is uh, from Lindsay. She's our inaugural questionnaire. She's from Cedar Falls. And, and Lindsay's question is, and we've talked about this a little bit, it looks like, but how do you differentiate between those who realize the importance of the work and are willing to have hard conversations and those who are just checking boxes. Thank you, Lindsay, for that question. And I'll leave that to you too to answer. I would just start with two things that, as you said, we've already talked about. And I assume we're talking about practitioners, not clients. Practitioners who are... I assume that's what you're talking about, Lindsay. <laughs> who, are check, who are checking the boxes are, first and most, practitioners who have the customer's always right mantra. If you measure the success of your diversity to belonging or culture practice on the, on the happiness of customers, um, you're checking the box. And it's not to say that you can't have good working relationships with customers. We do all the time. But if that is one of your primary sort of, you know, means of determining success, that probably means you're not willing to challenge. That probably means you're not actually willing to push buttons that need to be pushed in order to actually get to change. And I would say the second thing is... Um, if everything that's in your repertoire are things that have been done for 20 years, surveys, training, policy changes, core values, updates, things that could be, uh, we call them symptomatic solutions. It's not that they're completely unnecessary, but if everything in your proverbial toolbox are things we've done for decades, regardless of the lack of change, then I, I I really question, and I would stand to say, Vince and I really question whether or not you're just checking a box because part of our job should be to examine the impacts of what we're doing, what we're recommending. We've had people ask us point blank about the facilitation training. You mentioned, Nick, hey, we'd love to, we'd love to put your training online. We'd love to make it more accessible. We'd love to shrink it to one day so we can get more people in. These are like big companies who want to partner with us. And we're like, no, impact over everything. We have to examine the impact of what we're doing, and we really have to ask ourselves if what we're willing to do is going to have that impact, and if not, are we willing to make the necessary changes no matter how comfortable they are? If everything is about the same thing because it's more accessible, there's more money to it, it, it takes less time so we can have more clients, then I question whether you're a check-the-box person. We have another listener question I want to get to here because I'm curious how you answer this as well. 
Who's this one from, Nick? This is from KJ in Cedar Rapids. Do you find that real changes occurring in organizations requesting help, or do they start off strong and then fall back into old patterns? Yes, they, they are. Um, those that are more susceptible to falling back into old patterns are those who don't impl- they don't involve the workforce in the solutioning. The thing, again, collective regard wants people to get, get together in agreement on these are the conditions. These are the things that we complain about most. These are things that impact us the most. And here's what's at the root of it. It's a hard thing to unsee. Now, if you employ those same people into the solution, it's going to be a harder thing to slide back from. When you go with symptomatic findings and symptomatic solutions that are superficial and really only treat what's on the surface is like window dressing. Our diversity numbers are looking low. Let's bring in some people, bring these people in from other organizations to improve diversity. It's a right now fix, but it's symptomatic because you never explored why they were low to begin with. How do the people feel who are in those positions? Would they even recommend this as a place to go? So another question that I always, I always love, I'd love to talk to you all about because we believe the same way is why is belonging first over diversity? You always see companies say we need to hire more diversity. What's the problem with doing it that way? Answer it through an example, starting with Vince's point. So Easy to look at demographics. We love diversity because this number is easy to track. But we can look at demographic numbers and say you have a representation issue and a diversity issue. And traditional solutioning says you need a strategic recruitment plan. Let's go to black, historically black colleges and universities. But Vince just said it. What happens if you go to those HBCUs or traditionally women colleges, any anything that has underrepresented communities, and you try to bring applicants into the organization, but the current people there don't feel like they belong, mm-hmm. particularly in a day of social media where, where people talk, glass door is real. If I don't already feel like I belong, I am, I'm already looking for an exit strategy, and yet you're trying to bring more people into it. Even if we talk about equity, which is what, what else should be the effort, how do you really figure out how to equalize access and opportunity unless you bring along the people who right now are victims of that inequity? people who you work in your organization. But if you actually focus on belonging, not only will they feel like they can be their authentic selves, they'll feel like they belong. They'll want to help you bring other people in and they can really help you figure out how to equalize access and opportunity. But we focus on diversity because it's easy to count people. We focus on inclusion because we like to do these events, history month events, cultural lunches or whatever. But inclusion without belonging feels performative because what you're essentially telling me is, for this particular month or this particular day, you're spotlighting me. But every other month, every other day of the year, I'm just back in the shadows. It feels performative. And that's why a lot of people are backing away from those events. They're like, look, don't bother. If you can't on a day-to-day basis prevent me from having to code switch, to close switch, anything else. Thanks for sharing that. Great questions. Great questions. Well, uh, Again, keep your questions coming. Uh, info at toprank.talentsolutions.com. We appreciate it. So thanks, Lindsay and KJ. And thanks, Nick, for throwing an extra question in there. So we, we're going to wrap up. Well, I mean, we, we got a couple, one, oh, yes, couple more yes, things still yes, here. We got yes, a couple more things forgot, still here. I forgot. We got stuff. We got, we got some books here. So, um, you know, you both have offered, uh, co-authored a couple books. Um, 
you know, the one, the first one was unmasking the culture culprit. And, and in my mind, it's, it's root cause. It's all talks about root cause and some of the symptoms. So we'll get some links on here and Amazon links for our podcast on this. So let's talk about that one first. What was your motivation for writing this book? <laughs> it's looking at me. <laughs> Quite honestly, um, we found it a struggle to get people at all levels, not, not just supervisors, to really understand and examine how a culture problem begins. Um, again, they tie it to poor communication, low accountability, poor leadership, those symptoms. When we really had to get people to examine what the collective's role is in culture. Um, so we found that as sort of a very, very practical way to get people to understand that they might be the culprit. And if we can all sort of see that we're, we're part of the problem, then maybe we can all start examining how to become part of the solution instead of the isolation and finger pointing and wagging we see. It's a good book. I like it. Uh, what I also like about your books is they're short reads. For those that you know don't like reading long books, they're powerful uh, and they're short reads. Uh, so, so your other book, I was I was intrigued by it. Uh, everything I wanted to unlearn as that I learned as a kindergartner, and I start thinking about my my own sayings and stuff that I've learned. And um, what what came of that? Was it was it? Well, what came of that? Let me ask that. Let me not answer it for you. <laughs> It's, it's, uh, it's an invitation to explore some of the things that we, you know, we've held to be true basically all of our lives. Mm -hmm. uh, to really break down what's behind that. Why, why did it work then? Why, why, why did people consider it to be helpful then? And how is it helping us today? How is it impacting us right now? That very mentality. You know, so th these sayings, you know, we we all often utter them. We'll hold people to those to those sayings, yeah. not, without really understanding the impact of what we're saying as it relates to the world today, and what's required to get to uh, to real change. I'm getting ready to challenge it. <laughs> Give it to <laughs> me. No, in a fun way. Okay. If you're like me, I like music, and all my tracks are like my kids. <laughs> So what's your favorite quote in that second book? What's your favorite saying that you had to challenge in that book? You had a 12 of them, I think, was it? I think we had 12 sayings. So what was your favorite one? I'm going to give you two, but I'll <laughs> only describe one. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I can't stand that phrase. And then cancel culture, because there's actually no such thing as cancel culture. Why not? Because culture is collective regard and social norms, collective and norms being the key. I follow pop culture sports like it's nobody's business. And I can tell you almost every single person that had that there has been an attempted cancellation of, and almost in no case are they ever canceled. Mm -hmm. And it's not because people shouldn't be held accountable, but your everyday person doesn't care enough, to be perfectly frank with you, um, to cancel people for the reasons that, um, that other people attempt to cancel them. Uh, and oh, by the way, trying to cancel somebody, if they weren't somebody that you would have bought or listened to anyway, and, and again, I'm, we're not mm -hmm. saying, and the book says this a thousand times, we're not saying people shouldn't be held accountable. But when, you, but when we call it cancel culture, we're basically saying that it's something in the culture, it's something that the collective is behind, that there's social norms around. I can probably name three celebrities who've been successfully canceled, the others not at all. And in fact, Grammy nominations came out yesterday, Dave Chappelle 
and uh, Louis C.K. both nominated for Best Comedy Album. Louis C.K. won it in February. is a favorite to win it again. Mm-hmm. Pe- most most of your everyday people, whether this is right or wrong, don't care to cancel people because they see the they see repair and rehabilitation and incidents through a different lens. So it doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. Wow, I said that guy. Is that was that your other favorite one? That was my other favorite, but I yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I uh, you know, to think uh, to think I, that I should push myself to near death in order to gain strength. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what are we doing here? But wait, you guys are military guys, isn't that what they teach? Yeah, we could write another book about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I that would have been a much. Th- yeah, talked about a short read. There's no, there's no such thing as a short read in that regard. Yeah, no. <laughs> All well intentioned in many cases, uh, well intentioned. Yeah. Um, but, but, um, I mean, much of the things that are uh, ailing our society today were well intentioned uh, at the time of of their uh, implementation. And we always talk about one, especially since we started as a recruiting firm, was, you know, instead of finding ways not to hire people, how about we find ways to hire them? It's just, it's, you hear all these things, these sayings that are just out there. And it's just, why do we keep thinking that way? I started thinking of my own, I, literally, I started, as I, after I read that, I started thinking of just little sayings that I say in my life that I've said, and I really didn't even understand the impact of them. So I'm going to leave you with this one that I used to say all the time. Man, how was work today? Man, I was working like a slave. I used to say that all the time. They didn't think twice about it. What the heck? Like, why? Where does that come from? Yeah. Right. Like, so to our to our listeners, as you think about some of the sayings that we've been brought up to, this is a great book, a great read. You should think about it and think about some of the things that we say, some of the things that we were taught that just become natural. What did they really mean, and where did they come from? Yeah. So, great point. We're going to wrap this up. I know we could talk all day. Hopefully in episode two sometime in the future. Yes, Part yes. Two. Gotta have, so, there's so much to talk about. Uh, we come back when it's back. not snowing. Yep. Is there any other advice you want to give to our listeners um, about ways to influence their hearts and minds, you know, and inspire change and, and influence change? Anything else you want to leave our listeners with today? There's one that I always struggle to communicate, but I'm going to communicate it anyway because I think it's important. And it gets to what Vince was talking about earlier with regards to being that change agent, having that hope. There are a number of social media influencers, advocates, culture advocates, social justice advocates who ask us all the time why they struggle to find work or why they struggle to maybe actualize the change they want to see. And, And this is just something to leave people to think about. We have to be authentic, honest, um, you know, brokers when it comes to advocating for social justice change and not but. We have to realize that our LinkedIn selves, our social media selves are giving an indication to people about whether or not we're change agents or whether or not we're social media influencers. And they're two different things. Mm-hmm. If you're a change agent, then what you're communicating has that lens of hope, has that lens of inspiration, as opposed to being somebody who communicates through a social media influencer lens where it might be inspirational to to some people, but it doesn't signify to others that you're actually about change or that or that you could help an organization see through change. Like that. I would say that if you aren't willing to accept that things may seemingly get worse, 
so that they can actually get better, it's very difficult to be a part of the solution that is required to bring about change today. No matter what echelon you're at, even on an individual level, you think about health issues and you say, well, I got this cough, so I'm going to take some cough syrup because it's cough syrup. I should be good. But at the end of the day, when I have the courage to go into a doctor and have them explore all these, other, I, I have to have the courage to accept things may be worse than what I. Yes, right. And, and, the, and the remedy may be harder than the symptoms yeah. for me. Yeah. But if I truly want to get better, I have to be in a place where I'm willing to accept those contingencies to deal with them. As a, as a frequent visitor of the VA, I, I really like your analogy. <laughs> really like your analogy. But, you know, hearing your guys wrap up what your thoughts, it rings me to my favorite quote part of the book is, is change takes time, which isn't true. It's people take time. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, right. you know, I, I love that. So, yes, that's um, one of my favorites. Yeah. We thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, it's this been a great. pleasure. So, yeah, I love th it. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank you, Christian Betts and, and to yeah. Veritas for joining us today. Big shout out also to our five-star presenting sponsor, Kirkwood Community College. We appreciate your partnership on this podcast as well. So, yep. I'd also like to thank our, our friends of Breaking Barriers, Tyler Lincoln Barnes, Dentistry. We appreciate your support. We'd love to hear from you, audience. Uh, if, if you like this show, please like and share. Again, get your comments, questions into info, sorry, <laughs> at toprankedtalentsolutions.com. Future business owners, pick a shorter website yeah URL. pick a shorter website exactly exactly <laughs> um, one other thing to leave you with us when you check out our linkedin page and our website we will start posting ahead or our guests are going to be if you have specific questions to them as well please reach out so we hope we take you whatever you heard today um and we hope you take it and change hearts and minds in your communities or your life or as you look in the mirror at yourself so thank you for the time and help us keep breaking barriers advancing equity is not a one-year project it's a generational commitment there are too few people in the world willing to be the domino, too few people willing to take that fall.